you tell yourself, it's only a movie. It's only a movie. But sooner or later, it's time to go home. Welcome to Filmstrip. I'm Jay. And I'm Brian. And we're here to review the 2018 version of Halloween, starring Jamie Lee Curtis, Judy Greer, Andy Matichek, Will Patton, Haluk Billinger, Toby Huss, and James Jude Courtney. Directed by David Gordon Green, released in October 2018 on a budget of $15 million, grossed over $150 million at the box office, and was met with a ton of critical acclaim. Now, Brian, when this movie came out, you and I were on podcast hiatus from Filmstrip. But we had reviewed all the previous Halloween films, and people can go back in the archives and listen to that. It's one of my favorite movies of all time. It's one of my favorite series. I'm a total sucker for it. So I was down for Halloween, and I remember like thinking, I'm so excited to be able to just watch a Halloween movie and not have to think about reviewing it. Mm-hmm. And so like we were texting back and forth. Man, I was totally hyped up for this thing when it came out last year. Yeah. I mean, this is one I didn't actually see in the theaters or anything like that. And in fact, I didn't even see it until we decided to revisit this and, and relaunch the podcast because, you know, I, it's just, I never really thought about it. I have the soundtrack, believe it or not, which I think is amazing. Um, but I didn't really feel the need to see it, especially after your first review, which maybe we don't <laughs> need to talk about right now, but, um, yeah. it kind of swayed me into the, well, I'll maybe get it one day and watch it then. Uh, but I'm, I'm actually kind of surprised 15 million was the, all they had for a budget. Well, the interesting part here is that Halloween franchise that was owned by Dimension Films and all this fell out of their hands because they didn't make another sequel. When we recorded our last podcast, they were on the docket to do Halloween 3D. At that point, Mm -hmm. they were going to pick up the Rob Zombie storyline, but he wasn't going to be involved. They had different people involved. That fell apart. And then the rights came up to review and Blumhouse, the, you know, people that brought us The Conjuring and Paranormal Activity and dozens of other cool horror movies, Sinister, all that kind of stuff, bought it up because Jason Blum really wanted to own the Halloween catalog and he wanted to make another Halloween movie. He's buddies with Jake Gyllenhaal, who is like, uh, they, they call it like the unofficial godson, but she's just, he's really close to Jamie Lee Curtis, just has been for decades. And he told her, you really should do another Halloween movie. Like you really should think about doing it. Jason's got the rights now. You should really think about it. And she said, well, I'll only do it if Carpenter's involved. And he was like, I ain't interested in none of that. He said, but I'll do the score, which got people interested. And then they went to Danny McBride and David Gordon Green. Now, if you know Danny McBride from anything, have you seen like Your Highness or, you know, Eastbound and Down or any of the other comedy stuff, Vice Principals stuff that he's involved in? No, I can't say I have. No. I, he was massive in comedy and I only knew him sort of tangentially from that, but he was in alien covenant too. Mm. Um, and on the press tour of that, it word got out that, Hey, you're writing the next Halloween movie with David Gordon green, who was sort of this Arthur filmmaker that had come up and then it started doing like bid budget comedies. And he said, yeah, I'm real excited to do something that's different. That's not comedy. And 
when Jamie Lee Curtis met David Gordon Green and him, she was sold. She was like, yep, I'm down. Let's do it. And they planned out to do it on basically the 40 year anniversary of Halloween. And then there's, there's more to the production of it. But I, you know, when we last left off, I thought we were getting Halloween 3D and I didn't know what that could possibly be. And neither did the studio. And so they let it go. <laughs> and, um, and so it, it ended up in Blumhouse. But the thing I know about Blumhouse, all that long story is to say they don't put a lot of money on the front end on movies. They, but they, make a boatload on the back end well, and it's just yeah. Jason, Jason Blum's just got a thing and the way they do that and they get big name stars to be in it is they give you like executive producer titles and basically points on the back end so hmm. they pay you like scale on the front end but then you make a lot of money if the movie's a hit okay. on the back end way to do and it. yeah it's a smart it's a smart way to do it you churn out a lot of product that way and they use the revenue from it to make other movies some of which are better than others you know here and there but the, you know Blumhouse got a hold of this and I was excited about that genuinely because I like a lot of what they put out and I think it's fresh and I thought you know Dimensions had this long enough and chasing another rabbit hole is not something I'm interested in doing with them so uh, if they're going to go you know back and do something new and fresh I was game I, I was interested to see what could happen I think it's fascinating. I honestly would have loved to have seen what uh, any kind of script to a follow-up to the Rob Zombie versions they would have had because them was some screwed up stuff. I mean, yeah, they left that in a weird place. They did, and I think that, you know, I, I highly recommend going back and listening to our reviews of those because I think I still hold to this day that everything that happened in that movie was all imaginary um, in the second <laughs> one and that she had been in an insane asylum the whole time. But... You know, whatever. I mean, if, if you listen to Rob Zombie, he'll tell you that that's the last thing she thinks about before she dies because everything you see happens on screen and everybody gets shot and everybody's dead. That was the other problem the studio had is everyone's dead. Well, like, yeah, literally dead. Things, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, that Yeah, it's hard to pick up from. I mean, there, there was one script, Brian, going around that uh, Michael Myers was going to be in prison and about to be electrocuted and something went wrong with the electric chair and he got out. And I'm like, oh, that would have been awful. And, and then there was another one where they were going to retcon more of it again and go back and he was in prison and was going to break out and it was all going to take place in the prison and the prison hospital. And I was like, I, I didn't we already do that? And so they can never get it together enough to do it. I mean, they had the stars, Scout Taylor Compton and Tyler Maine signed up and ready to go. But, you know, again, Malika Cod, who is still involved with this, says that he could write a book on like all the bad Halloween pitches he got oh, and I'm said sure. no I'm through sure. the years. <laughs> and I would, I would actually like to read that. I imagine it would be pretty funny because I mean, it's a profitable franchise. Horror is in a renaissance right now. So I get why you would want to do it. But if at the chance of getting your big star back and. The fact that she wants to do it again, Carpenter's somewhat still involved, but I mean, really all he's doing is just, I mean, he's doing this, the score and you mentioned it, that score is awesome. And, you know, we, we can get into that more as we get into the film, but, um, yeah, you've got a lot of the pieces back in place to do Halloween 40 years later. The problem is, is that you've already done this once and you did it 20 years ago. You got to remember too, that Carpenter was forced to do a sequel that he didn't want to do. So this is kind of like a, throw everything out the window and, and tell the story that the way that it should have been the first time, maybe. I don't know. Danny McBride says that he looked at Halloween as the choose your own adventure horror series because oh, sure. there's so many, there's so many places you could go to. And what he and David Gordon Green and Jeff Fradley, their, their co-writer realized was there's no way to satisfy 
everyone and also pay honor to it. So why don't we just go all the way back? Because one thing that has remained consistent through the decades, John Carpenter has always copped the fact that making Laurie and Michael brother and sister was a late night binge drinking, desperate attempt to try to come up with something else to do for a sequel. Mm-hmm. And Everyone involved with the movies since has always said that's the biggest anchor to try to deal with and drag around with this series. It's what do we do about this family connection? I mean, think about it, all of them are really about that. Yep. And so to go away from that completely is not a bad move. All right. On, on, on surface and in principle, like I get the idea when that first came out, that news that they broke, like this is going to be a sequel to Halloween 1978. And no, they're not related. And everything else that has happened since then is now part of a different timeline that you can go and enjoy, but we're going to pick up and do something different. I, my first reaction was like, that's bold. Okay. Let's see how that works. And the more I, you know, I, I mean, I, I followed this movie's production the whole way through. The more I would read and hear about it and hear people talk, I was genuinely interested in like, you know what? There's actually some real, you know, smart moves going on with that. I think that is a smart decision to walk away from the thing that has tied up your series so much and has kept it so insular through all these years. I I get the reason of wanting to do that. I do too. And I think it was a a brilliant decision actually because so much stuff happened in all those other movies too that was just garbage and kind of ruined the whole story and the effect of michael myers and the real effect is that he's a serial murderer who's scary as hell and what he did in 1978 has haunted his only surviving victim this whole time. And that's what I liked about this story. This is what it would be like if you were a survivor of a serial killer, you're probably going to have some issues and we're going to deal with those. And I, I like that part about it. And so I think this is a good way to do it. And what's your worst nightmare? And yet the one thing you think is going to happen the, the most, he's going to get out and come for me. Or, or better yet, and in this character's case, I'm now resolved to that I want him out so that I can kill him. Yeah. You know, which is, was a line in the trailers and they talked about that. And it was, you know, Jamie Lee Curtis got interested in this because she looked at it as a good metaphor for, Hey, women, you know, have, have, have dealt with different issues and things like that. At some point, you got to take up the mantle and you got to take up your know, arms and, or, or, you know, even just your own strength and move yourself forward from it. And in this character's case, it's a fictional character. So she's not advocating go out and you know, murder your worst enemy or anything like that. But it's, you have to take the bull by the horns and deal with your own trauma and put it down yourself because no one can do it for you. And so that's what got her interested. And, Hearing people talk about that and all that stuff, I thought, okay, I kind of dig it. I dig the idea there because it's taking something that, again, is 40 years old and putting modern sensibility on it, but in a way that makes sense and doesn't feel ham-fisted. That was all the pre-production stuff coming up, and I'm like, you know what? That all sounds really good. Well, and and you got to think, too, this is this is a true raw emotion that someone who's lived through this will probably have, you know, the the desire to get revenge on on the on the person who did this to you. Um, and that's what she's been living with and training for and everything else her whole life. And yeah, I mean, I get it. That would, that seems to be a, a true human emotion that someone could take. So it works. Yeah. I mean, it, it makes sense that this is a good way to pick up the series and like we say, do something new with it while still, 
being cool with the fact that there are these other roads you can go down if you want to. We'll talk about how they play that out and the way that it, it works as we get into this. But just as a concept, the idea is great. The same, I mean, I felt the same way about this the way I did in 1997 and 98 when I found out they were doing H2O. Mm-hmm. And I was like, what a great idea. You're bringing back the lead character. We're sort of wiping the slate clean from all the goofy stuff we've been doing. We're going to go back to the beginning and pick up on this. And, you know, they they kept in Halloween 2 as part of the continuity, which is the Laurie and Michael are siblings. Where would, it, where would she be 20 years later? What would that look like? What would they have to say to each other? Mm-hmm. And now to do it at 40 years later... It's interesting. So when I went and watched this back in October of 2018, I watched the first movie. And then I went to the theater with my wife to go see this because she's into the Halloween. She's watched all of it with me. And so we went and did not have the greatest reaction to it. Like I wasn't ready to like burn the poster down like I did coming out of like Prometheus or something, but I was very much on the meh side yes, of, you were. of seeing this. <laughs> so I was, I, I let it be known. You can go back and read my tweets about it. Or Brian can just expose all of my old texts that I sent him about. <laughs> um, but I, you know, I was very, and then I said, you know what? I'm going to try it again. So I just went and saw it again on my own, like a week later. And I, I softened on it a little bit, but I still felt kind of the same. And I hadn't gone back to this one since. Um, and I, the funny thing is, is I remember almost everything about it. Like it's, it's very smart in the fact that it's a pretty contained and simple story again. So it's not hard to pick up on stuff. Um, I don't know that I got anything different out of it. Having now seen it again, you know, almost uh, a year later here for this review, but I debated on like, do I even want to own this thing? And after I only bought it to own it again for part of this review, I, did, I hadn't added this one to the collection mm. uh, since, you know, the, the last time that it came out. Well, that is fascinating. I, I bought it, um, because it was really inexpensive on Blu-ray. Um, and so mm. I thought, well, why not? I was going to just go look and see if I could watch it online or something. But when I looked it up on, on, uh, online, I saw the price and I was like, shit, I'll just buy this. Right. And, um, so yeah, I mean, I have all the other ones from our previous retrospective. So why not have this one too? You got to complete the catalog. It's like, uh, your favorite band puts out a really crappy album, but you have the rest of them. You still go buy the crappy one right like like van halen 3 well if you're a true van halen fan and you're a van halen not absolutely right so for me it's like um if i look at uh, acdc right my favorite band of all time uh i'm not a big fan of the album 74 jailbreak um there's some good tunes on it sure but it's just kind of there and so i rarely ever play it but i own it on CD, I own it on vinyl because it's a part of the collection and I want to have it. So with Halloween, we know that's your favorite, um, you know, movie franchise probably ever. So yeah. you should own it, even if you don't ever watch it again. It's like, do you sit and watch Season of the Witch all the time? Probably not. I, I, actually, more often than you would believe. That is but, really uh, sad, Jay. I'm really sorry for you. <laughs> but uh, no, there's a cult following to oh that, that film now. Oh. But you know what's funny though? You mentioned that. Like I, this, the funny thing about this one is, it's the only one I own digitally. Uh-huh, all right, okay. uh, I have all of them on DVDs. You know, before I even have some, some old VHSs of a few of them. But I, I, I skipped the Blu-ray world. Um, so I just have all the DVDs. But I hadn't added this one in. But I bought it digitally because it was one. It was cheaper. It was like five bucks to add it to my Voodoo. Sure, why not? Right? Whatever. And then I got a deal to buy the original Halloween for like eight. And uh-huh. so now I have like 1978 and this one in the Voodoo. And so I kind of look at it again as sort of like, well, my DVD collection is my choose your own adventure versions of this series. And then there's what they really want me to 
just focus on are these two films now in the, the voodoo catalog. So it was a matter of time before I added it in. It was honestly just a, I, I thought if I buy this, I'm not going to watch it. So why have it? Uh-huh. Even if I, as a completist and I want it, I didn't want to rewatch it. Cause at the time we didn't have any plans to restart film strip. And I sure. thought, well, what am, what am I ever going to do with this? Like, I don't, I don't have anyone to talk to about it. Rachel didn't like it when we went and saw it together. So she doesn't really want to see it again. So why watch it again? You know, yeah. so I, I'll just, you know, not. And so I skipped it. And, um, I mean, I saw it twice in October of 2018, man, and hadn't thought about it again until we got ready to record it for this October's uh, film strip here. So. Yeah. Well, why don't you, Jay, go ahead and give us a plot summary of this awful movie, according to you? (laughs) (laughs) That was awful, but we'll see. (laughs) It's been 40 years since Michael Myers escaped from Smith's Grove and returned to Haddonfield. And after he was shot off the balcony by Dr. Loomis, Myers was captured and returned to confinement where he's been ever since. Laurie Strode's had a hard time dealing with that attack in the aftermath of her friend's murders and her stalking. Several broken relationships, two failed marriages, estrangement from her daughter Karen, and constant paranoia have driven Laurie into an adopt-a-survivalist attitude, where she builds a compound uh, complete with tons of traps and lots of guns and constantly trains for the day that she knows he will finally get out so she can kill him. She spends her days in the fenced-off compound where she trains with all manner of weapons while still trying to maintain a relationship with her granddaughter, Allison, who likes to reciprocate and wants to include her more in, but uh, is often rebuffed by her mother. When a couple of seemingly independently wealthy British podcasters try to interview Michael Myers and subsequently Laurie, all the bad memories of that night flood back for her. Myers escapes after a prison bus. He's on overturns that he's uh, being transferred with his doctor, and he makes his way back to Haddonfield, slaughtering many in the process. As it turns out, this doctor, Sartan, who took over after Loomis died, set Michael free in order to see what it was really like and if he indeed was the unstoppable force of nature that Loomis obsessed about for decades. Myers kills Sartan eventually and corners Laurie along with Karen and Allison at her compound. And after a lot of back and forth fighting, the Strode women trap Michael in the basement and set the whole place on fire. And they escape the place as the place burns to the ground. But we get a final shot of a now empty basement, possibly indicating Michael is once again out there as credits roll. And that's the plot summary for Halloween 2018. That is the plot summary. And uh, I think you summed it up fairly well there, actually. Uh, yeah. Uh there's a lot to go on here, and you know I can understand why maybe you had the feelings you did, but I'm going to tell you, this is how I watched it. I did not go back to the original Halloween on this. I decided to just go and take it as it was, as a movie, maybe as a, even a possible standalone, knowing that Michael Myers is a murderer who uh, tried to kill Laurie Strode. That's all I went in thinking about. And so uh, from that point of view... I really thought it was well done. And I went in again, front loading myself for it the way I did when I saw it in theaters. I watched the original and then I watched this. I didn't watch them back to back. I I split them over two days, but I did that because that's what the filmmakers said. If you really want to get the full experience, you can do that. You know, and, and when I watched these movies before, like I, I, you know, I make little games out of it. I can watch like Halloween, Halloween 2 and Halloween H2 and kind of a marathon. And then, you know, it's a lot of fun. We, Rachel and I do that at, at Halloween time because it's a lot of fun for us and it's a good way to kind of cram them together. And they're totally very different films. So it's a lot of shifting around for that. <laughs> um, and that, I think the, the thing that I did that for was because I wanted to put in my mind where I'm supposed to meet the character Laurie sure. is I'm supposed to know that she was the, 
girl that had all this happen to her. She sees this man shoot another man off a balcony and asks him, is that the boogeyman? And the guy, the last thing he says to her is, yep, pretty much. And so that's the last thing she knows. And what we're supposed to know is that, you know, the ending of Halloween still stands. He looks out of the balcony and he's not there, but he was basically stumbling down the street and the cops showed up and cause the cavalry was on the way as we already know. And they just capture him and we don't have to see that. We don't need any of that. And the one contribution besides the score that Carpenter gave them was to steer them away from what he thought would be a really bad idea. And they were going to reshoot the ending of the original mm-hmm. Halloween and have Myers kill Loomis. And then the cops show up and gun him down and take him into custody. And what Carpenter told him was, if you want to erase everything after that first one, go for it. But it's probably better off to not touch that because in the first minute of the film, you're stepping all over everybody's memories of the series. And now you're stepping on the thing that is sort of center sacred. And I think that was a smart move to not do that. Yeah, I think that was a smart move as well. You don't want to do that. And I like the story that they gave that Loomis pretty much just died of old age. And the, yeah. the new guy, uh, Sartan, took over for him and has become the doctor. And I like the little throw-ins from time to time where Laurie finds out that Loomis is no longer there, uh, no longer the doctor. I think that was cool. She didn't know. I obviously didn't keep up with that. But um I also like the fact that we're playing off, uh, you know, that this has affected her whole life, right? Um, mm-hmm. Failed marriages because of this. Alcoholism was a problem for her. Um, she trained her kid to basically become a weapon for her in this whole thing and um you know has a very agoraphobic type uh attitude which i don't know if she really does or not because she does go out uh quite often yeah they say that but then they don't act like right. it. she, very she weird. you, you yeah. get the feeling she is because of all the locks she has and everything else on her house uh, but then you know she's shows up at the daughter's what school or, or wherever it was and mm-hmm. gives her some money that she got from the podcasters who, by the way, what the hell? Um, We're going to talk about that. There's told on. So. Yeah, no, <laughs> t- talk about bringing it back into the, the modern age for sure. But, um, you know, so she, I don't think she is that, but then of course, when she starts seeing, he's going to be moved. This is really what drives everything, right? He's going to be processed and moved to a new facility. Um, because something's happening with the old one. I think the doctors, the, they're closing that wing of the, of the, of the prison and now they're going to move. Well, them. well, what, what we are to know is that, and what is revealed is that it's all Sartain that does that well, because he wants to set him free. Yeah. Like it, he just right. conveniently uses the budget as the reason why. Right. But so. that, that, that's what they're reporting. And so she's seeing this on there and it's really getting to her and she's getting paranoid about it. She's getting ready for what's to come. You see her training grounds, which is kind of interesting. Um, and then, you see that it's driving her to drink, which she doesn't do anymore. And you, in, intertwined in all this is you've got Allison and her boyfriend who is meeting the parents for the first time. And she invites her grandma for what reason I don't understand, because that's the last thing I want to do when I'm introducing someone I like to my parents <laughs> is introduce them to my grandparents, too. I mean, that might be a little overboard, but whatever. Well, I, I can tell you, like, I think the way you're supposed to read that. Is that because Allison's mother, Karen, has such a negative view and 
for valid reasons, by the way, sure. of her mother and doesn't want to expose her daughter to that and, and lies to her and kind of cuts her out of stuff. That's just rebellious teenager Allison. And I mean, you know, she's, uh, she's exactly mom, Laurie sure. again. Yeah. She's Laurie again. She's the A honor student. She's the smart kid, but she's also a modern kid too. So like, you know, she smokes a little weed and she, you know, she's fun and all this kind of stuff. And she wants to involve her grandmother in her life because she, she's like a lot of Gen Y. In that, like, hey, just because people had done screwed up stuff, it doesn't mean that you cut them out of your life. We gotta, you know, accept everybody. And so she's trying to be very inclusive. And so I, I kind of like the fact that they played that in there or whatever. How they go about doing it, I didn't really dig so much, but I get the motivation there. But I think that the, the thing to do is to start the way this movie starts is this cold open at the mental facility, right? And I, I don't know, like, I, it was it was jarring to just start sort of out of nowhere wearing this bright light. You got these people standing there waiting to be admitted. You got all these, you know, seemingly mental patients standing around staring at walls, watching things that aren't there, all this kind of stuff. And you get all this bit about there's case files on this and all Loomis could come up with was pure evil. And I, my question was like, how many case files can there be on pure evil? Like maybe just one or two? I don't know. Oh goodness, um, no. Yeah. I'm sure there's more than that. I mean <laughs> But I mean it's it's but it's a weird cold open, right? Because what we meet is we get the podcast. Podcasters, yep. um, who are from Great Britain. And uh, I get the idea here is, you know, Cyril was this big thing and podcasting is bigger than it's ever been, Brian. Like advertising rates on podcasting are massive right now. They've grown like 500% in three years. So it's a medium that is very much part of the current day. But I can't help but feel like this kind of dates this a little bit. Yeah. What, what would have been smarter for me is like true crime television expose shows are huge. Like, why not just have these people be part of something like that? And they're following up on it. Or just be reporters. You know, just, just simple reporters. What I, I'll tell you what I did like. I love the old school graphics. The old school intro to the, to the movie. They made it. Oh, the reverse pump connection that we get? Everything about it. Like, the, the computer graphics that they used on this are so 1970s that it makes it feel like it is a sequel to the first one because it gets, it has that feel right from the get go, right? Um, the, the, the fonts that they use, the, the almost a grainy look that it has to it at the intro part. I, I do like the pumpkin reverse pumpkin. You know, I thought that was kind of cool and all that, but yes, we opened on a weird spot, but, um, I kind of dug it. I, I thought it was cool and getting a little look inside what Michael Myers world is now. And I mean, just, how bizarre to have all these um, psych patients chained outside like dogs. Yeah, they're, they're all chained to like these big anvils in 12 by 12 squares so that they can like enjoy the sunlight, but you're not supposed to talk to them. You can't cross the yellow line and all this kind of stuff. It's I don't know, man, like it would have been fine for me if like they just had him kind of off in his own corner and they went to visit him there. I didn't need the other nuts at the loony bin. Well, like, that was almost too much, especially when he pulls the mask out. Cause he's trying to goad Michael right. into responding to something. And like everybody else loses their mind. I'm like, is the mask like powerful now? Does it have like satanic vibes? Do, how does everybody know that that's what it is? These people can't like keep their lives together enough to be out of mental prison. I don't think they're reading the news about Michael Myers killing people 40 years ago. No, but I think if they're truly nuts, 
something like that is felt, right? The whole point of the mask was Michael can feel its presence, right? And it it calls to him and everything else. So, well, can can he? Because that's what I was going to ask. Like the the podcaster asks him that, and all he does is just kind of sort of half shrug. Like I do like the fact that we get Michael Myers as a sixty one year old man who's bearing the scars of the first film. His eyes screwed up. He's got the neck wound from the needle and all this stuff. I mean, he looks like. Kind of looks like David Gilmore from Pink Floyd right now, actually, uh, just a little taller and bigger. Uh, but nice. I mean, it, yeah, I mean, really, that's what he looks like. But I like the fact that they actually go into that because I mean, they, they make a joke out of that in H2O. It's like the guy would be 40 something years old, right? And I'm like, well, 40 ain't that old, brother. I'm 40, you know, whatever. Right. Come but on now. 61, I'm like, okay, 61's a different game. All right. Cause I the, think things don't work the way that they're supposed to, but. What we're supposed to believe and what this movie wants us to buy into is that Loomis was exactly right in that first movie. Absolutely. Is that this is no longer a human being. It is the embodiment of pure and total evil. And it has no desire except to just be evil. And it can be immensely patient. And so the fact that he doesn't react to the mask and stuff, I like. I just thought it was weird that everybody else was. Yes, but I think that the, the point is that the psychopaths can uh, sense the the prop that uh, drives someone, right? And I think Mike Myers does react, but he it's subtle reaction hmm. um, because he does kind of turn his eye towards it when the mask is out, but then stops and pretends like it doesn't affect him. And right. I think that's the power of that scene is that he, he does sense it's there, but he's not going to give in to this moron standing next to him. Now it would have been a lot cooler had said moron put that mask out and Myers snatched it from him. I think that would have been a more effective oh, piece. Oh, see, but that would have, that would have gone against again the whole character motivation here. Like what I needed honestly was I felt like this podcaster thing is not a, the worst idea. I just feel like it gets a lot of short shrift. I mean, in a movie that's nearly an hour and 50 minutes long, which is a lot longer than the standard Halloween movie, except for like the Rob Zombie ones, that I needed more about who these people were. I didn't need their whole ba- life backstory. I needed to know more about why are they chasing this story? Why does it matter 40 years yeah. later, especially to their audience? I needed them to just get just a little bit of while they're riding in the car instead of trying to record live audio from the road, which is never going to get used on a podcast, by the way, not right. a professional one. Uh, <laughs> I mean, yeah, really? Um, I don't care how nice that Zoom recorder is. But I needed them to talk, talking more about like, well, you know, we, we got that study that this case study that said this, or we had that show, you know, at the 30 year mark or something like that. Like they were picking up on something that there was reason to tell this story again, because one of the kids later on really lays it out. And I thought it was, it was good exposition when he's like, he killed a couple of people. Like by today's standards, that's not that big a deal. Right. You know, and while yes, it's traumatic. I don't know that it would be news anymore, especially in middle America. And you have to, again, erase from your mind everything you know about Michael Myers' exploits. All he did, he killed his sister when he was a kid. He got out. He killed four other people. And then he has been locked away ever since. He's been incarcerated 55 years of his life. I mean, what else can you possibly tell about that story? 
Well, you can tell the fact that he will not speak and hasn't spoken for 40 years. Ah, but they changed that. They they changed the dynamic on that. Sartain says very clearly he can speak. He just chooses not to. So you get the sense that, like, at some point he actually said something to some of these people. And then they they just cut it off, which I actually thought was smart. That's a deleted scene in one of the Rob Zombie movies when the kid says, I just don't have anything else to say anymore when he's talking to Malcolm McDowell's Loomis. And I thought that was a genius line that should have stayed in. Like, I like that they included that in this and that they dropped that line. He chooses not to. He can. He just well, doesn't want and to. I think, yeah, and I think that we can t- take that from the, the zombie versions of the fact that he spoke prior to his first uh, getting out, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, then ever since hasn't said a word. So we, we would know from Loomis's notes and records and everything else that he does well, have that ability. And and in the first movie though, Loomis says all the time, like he hasn't spoken a word in fifteen years. Like that's that's one of the first lines of the first movie. It's 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 a character right. so point. So we've already set up that but, he does speak. He just has. Yeah, he done. does. He he just doesn't want to, right? And so the idea that they're trying to goad him into saying something again is like, why would you let this person scream at the mental patients? And that rings weird until you realize that like Sartain is actually setting all this up. And what I really would have loved is just a drop line where they go like, it's finally nice to meet you in person. Like they had been corresponding with this guy for six months yeah, or whatever right. before they finally got there. Cause it seems like they just show up, get a rental car from Hertz and drive over to the mental facility. Well, they, it's, do, it's mention, sort of they do mention in there that um, they had to get it in now because when they move to the new facility, they're not as uh, welcoming of reporters coming in and asking questions. Right. So right. Because the, they're yeah. yeah. So they already mentioned that they they probably had a working relationship with this place before, and they could get in there easy. While whereas wherever he was heading to next, they wouldn't probably be able to do it. So. But again, that that you know, we get the big screaming match, the mask, and then we get the opening credits that you've talked about that you dug. I. They were fine. I like the, I, again, the score here is awesome. And it's just Carpenter sort of redoing the old score with his son and Daniel Davies. And I thought that was, it was good. And then we go to where we're, again, we're recording live audio on the road, but we want to talk to Laurie, right? And this is going to go badly because he tries to introduce himself like, we're podcasters and the woman's like, we're journalists. They're like, she won't know what that is. Laurie's not big on the iTunes. And <laughs> then they're like, how about 3,000 bucks? And that's when I'm like, man, the most well-funded podcast. That's why I called them the apparently independently wealthy podcasters because even like Serial, when they were doing the Adnan Syed cases like that, like that's in PR like they didn't have that kind of money no like this you know that this that's it would have been again I, I realized why they wanted to do the true crime podcast angle but it just would have worked thematically better if you just said these people are from you know the New York Times or, or whatever like they, they were from some publication like it would make more sense because then yeah, you could we're doing really a story see that on a, the 40th anniversary right yeah there's a corporation behind the funding is the point because it just mm-hmm. sort of is weird but again that talk goes nowhere and I, I think Jamie Lee Curtis gives probably the best bit of her performance in this scene when and I think the way this is written is twofold. It's a character thing, but it's also sort of commenting on the broader part of the series. And maybe another reason why they ignored all the sequels was there's nothing else to gain. There's nothing else to know. You know everything you need to know because Loomis was right. This guy is pure evil and there's nothing you can know about me. And when they start laying out her personal drama, she's just done with it. Well, yeah. Like, what's that have to do with anything, right? It's it's her life, and and why do we need to uncover all that crap? Like nobody's gonna care. 
Did you get the sense that like one of the podcasters was trying to like humanize Michael Myers for her a oh, little absolutely. bit more? Like, well, I, I think he's a human being that needs to be understood. And she's like, mm, no, not really. Absolutely. That's the whole take is that uh, Michael Myers is a person. He's not a monster. And we're going to prove it with this whole thing. Right. And psh, that's their angle going in. And they want to show that Laurie Strode, the victim, is has painted him to be something he's really not. Well, the thing is, too, they want her to talk to him. Yes. Like, we tried to get a response out of him. We couldn't. And we think if we set him in front of you, it might do something. I'm like, he yeah. stalked her for one night. What does he even know? He doesn't even know her. She doesn't know him. They have no well, relation. That seemed to be weird her. motivation. <laughs> There's a connection there. Oh, of course he does. Uh, to me, it's no, there's a no-brainer that he wants to finish what he started. And killing her, he didn't finish that, and that's his, that's his whole thing. Okay, we're going to disagree when we get to the second half of this movie, because I don't think that's his motivation at all. But point, point being, they're trying to goad her into some sort of a response that they didn't get from him, and they think they can use her to do that. And she, of course, wants nothing to do with that, well, what, smartly, what, by the way. Who the hell would? What victim wants you know? to go sit in front of and have a conversation with the, someone who tried to murder her? Exactly. I mean, come on. Especially after you just laid out all of the stuff this did to my life right. in the years since. Now you want me to go face that? I don't, no thanks. Yeah. Nice <laughs> you know? try. Get out. Yeah. Give me my I'll, I'll take my I'll take my payment now yep, and right. go. And that's the thing. Like the whole payment thing, it seems like so. Like well, five minutes is worth three thousand dollars. But then the next thing we you know when we see her, she tries to give it to the granddaughter. Well, yeah. We've got to introduce them next. We get to meet daughter and granddaughter and weirdo dad. Holy uh, for, cow! Right. Man, that dude is good. Toby Huss, I know, I like, I like Halts and Catch Fire for the, you know, the season I watched it of it. He's good in it. I don't, I don't get what his whole deal is. I know he's a character from, like, he's one of the little kids that runs up to the house and is now grown up or whatever. It's one of those callbacks, but I'm like, how did that dude ever wind up with Judy Greer? <laughs> no, like mm, no. <laughs> so, mm, small no, town, definitely bro. small town. Mo mom's career definitely is paying for this house as a therapist. Because no, 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 no. Also, she must be a hell of a therapist because that's a nice house. But no, we meet them because we have to introduce them into the story, right? And that's where we get Allison doing the walk and talk with her friends to try to explain everything. And I actually I liked that because. Uh, by, again, I agree with Dave. By today's standards, this isn't that big of a deal. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it, it's a small town murder, right? And in the small town, it's a big deal. In the world as a whole, it's 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 nothing. Um, the the murders that get are are the celebrity murders, the high profile murders, or the mass shootings. That's what gets into the news. This one is just another murder. It happens all the time, right? And you can imagine in 1978 when it happened, and then maybe like the year or two after with the, you know, there were more trials and stuff. This was a story. But by the time Reagan got elected, everybody probably moved on. Well, you, know? you gotta and remember th too, and then they forgot serial it, killers you know? were a big thing going on at that time in the world. That's, from the, that's true. From the late 60s to the, to the mid to late 70s, that was a huge problem, all the way up to Ted Bundy. Well, yeah, but I mean, like, Bundy would have overtaken this in terms of national oh, news absolutely. and probably even local news by the mid-80s mm -hmm. at this point. I mean, the idea is that 40 years have gone by, and the, the thing, though, is they there's that scene later where they go to the graveyard and the woman's talking to him about how, like, you know, there's somebody over here that's got Ray Charles in there or whatever in the, in the graveyard, and this is our one thing. This is what Haddonfield's known for. So the town's, like, re received bad notoriety from it. 
But there was nothing else to tell me that maybe outside of the town anybody even thought about it ever. Like right. That it was on anybody's brain. Right. And so in that case, like if you're doing true crime podcasts, like it's definitely illuminating something maybe people have forgotten about. Sure. Like that's, you know, that's good journalisming, if you want to call it that. But I, I don't know. I just didn't get the sense that. I, I, I like the fact that we had a character, particularly a younger person, call out the fact that, like, this really isn't that big deal, uh, big of a deal. And then, you know, you have the two reactions. Her friend Vicky's like, hey, man, it's her grandmother. Like, chill out. Be sensitive. Right. Right. And but Allison agrees. Like, no, I get it. Like, it, it's it's ruined her life uh, because it's all she ever talks about. She obsesses about it. And I think that was a neat character motivation, because in all of the sequels, like, uh, particularly the one, the first six of them, like that's what happens to Loomis, right? Like his life becomes consumed with this thing. As does Sartan's, as we'll see. But I mean, yeah. if you think about it too, though, a person who is a victim of something like this, it does ruin their life. It's hard to oh, recover yeah. from something like that. So it makes sense that uh, about it. But I think what he's getting at is that people are making it out to be something um, big when it, in reality it's just small potatoes compared to what goes on in the rest of the world, right? And right. that's what I get. Now, the personal connection with her being the granddaughter, that's what she's saying be sensitive about. But if it weren't her grandmother, they'd probably all agree in the same same sentence, right? They'd probably all agree it was just not that big of a thing. Yeah, I think I think Vicky has the best lines. Like, if I was y'all, I'd just put up a Christmas tree and call it done. And I'm like, yeah, that would be <laughs> that would be smart. She's not she's not wrong there. But they also use that as the time to say like that's how they do it with the brother and sister connection. Like, no, people just made that up. You know, yep. it was just yep. whatever. And I remember that being in one of the early trailers. And when I saw that, I was like, if that's how they handle this in this movie, that's going to be good. And I want to make something real clear because I, I played my hand that when I saw this first, I didn't really like it. For the first part of this movie, I am into this, Brian. Mm-hmm. Like the first act. I am totally, as big Halloween fan, getting everything that I possibly could have expected about this. I am digging all of the setup, even though it's a little weird. I'm digging the way that they're they're setting me into the story. They're reintroducing me to this town. They're me, you know, having me meet these characters. I'm digging it up to this point. Like it, it is working for me. So I, I want, there's a point when the movie turns for me, and we'll talk about it when we get there. But it's not in the first part. The first part of this, I'm down for. And I, you know, I even like the fact that Jamie Lee Curtis gets that scene where she tries to give the granddaughter $3,000, like go on a cruise to Mexico or whatever. Like it'll piss your mother off and that'll be funny. You know, and <laughs> I'm like, man, your grandmother and you three grand. I don't know one kid that's going to not take that. Right. I don't care how wholesome you are. Right. Exactly. Um, you know, I'm with you. I, at this point in the movie, I am head on. I'm really enjoying everything that's going on. I'm loving the setup. We're getting to the point where we're going to start the, uh, the whole part where they're going to move him. I like the fact that she's sitting outside of the prison waiting for the bus to go. Like she's making sure that it gets off and running on time and nothing happens. Right. And I think that's kind of a cool thing. Yeah. They've set up her police scanners and all of her, and she's got know, a gun, some of her right? weapons. She's got a gun. She's ready to kill him if she sees him. Right. Yeah. She's got, she does like, she does the whole bit with the granddaughter and then goes on some weapon therapy yep. and shoots some mannequins, which that was again all over the trailers and stuff. But I, I you know, I like the Sarah Connor ring of Laurie Strode. Mm-hmm. I get it. It, it totally makes sense. And I like the way she plays that in the car too. Like she's down in many bottles of Jack Daniels or whatever to try to take the edge off, even though she's not supposed to be drinking and all this. And she, she even has like a, a hallucination that he's coming for her. Yeah. Uh, when the, when the bus lights go by, but it's not, you know, and we see her trauma 
um, unfolding in front of us. And I like that. I thought it was done well. Yeah. We get another scene too with the podcasters where they're listening to like old testimonial tapes of Loomis and a good voice acting, by the way, here. Somebody that did the Donald Pleasance, well, I don't know who it was, but. I love that Loomis's suggestion was you should kill him. Let me make sure he's dead. I'll listen to his heart stop. And then we're going to throw him in the incinerator immediately because it needs to die. Yeah. And I'm like, wow. Yeah. I like, okay, I, I dig it because that picks up with exactly all of that fancy talk as Sheriff Brackett would talk it that he was laying out in 1978 is that I shot this dude six times and y'all had to catch him at the end of the street. And the only reason you caught him is because I shot him six times. It's, we got to burn this up, like nuke the site from orbit. It's the only way to be sure. Absolutely. And I think that was a great uh, callback to it. And again, you know, six, six shots didn't kill him. Um, just, Having him be clinically dead wasn't enough for Loomis. He had to make sure the body was completely gone, and it was the only way he was going to know that this person or thing was no longer in existence. And I like that. I think that's a brilliant way to do it. And I think that sets mm-hmm. up well for what Lori's going to try and do in the end, too. Right. Yeah, it, it does make sense for how she wants to know how to take him out. Is you've got to utterly obliterate him, mm-hmm. you know, which is what we've known. Uh, so we, we've got the setup. Of all time, like act one, I'm down again. I'm like, this is all working every bit of this. All right. We go into act two and we get the seriously awkward family dinner scene. All right. (laughs) Where we spend way more time talking about like crap that doesn't matter. Like, what are you going to the dance as? And I knew your dad when he used to sell me peyote and all this other crap. Then we do with what I think is the more character motivational part of it. When Laurie does finally show up. And she downs a glass of wine and her daughter's like, what, you're not supposed to be doing that. What are you doing? You know, and they try to calm her down or whatever. And then we just sort of smash cut to her running out of the restaurant. And I'm like, I, one, that was weird to have in a public place, but I, I get that they're doing something that's very real. You got dysfunctional family members. Sometimes that stuff goes down in public and it's awkward and weird for everybody. So that was fine. The fact that we didn't spend any real time on it. Other than a couple of drop lines about from the husband about it, she's not yours to fix and all this kind of stuff. Didn't like I don't know, I missed it. Like I was like, I I don't know. I I got caught up in also trying to do math of like how old is everybody here? Because this is forty <laughs> years later. So Judy Greer's in her forties, this is clear. But no, so let's say she's thirty seven or so here. So Laurie got married pretty quick and had a kid right after all this happened. Okay, fine. Um we know granddaughter seventeen. Uh, I, you know, I was trying to put all that together and I realized I'm like, I'm now having to do work for the movie. And this is the first time that they've made me do that kind of active work. And I, it just, as a scene, it just didn't work for me. Okay. Well, I, I didn't even bother with that kind of work. I, I took it for what it was and what they gave me. Um, and it worked out fine. You know, so say she's 35, daughter's 17, daughter had a baby really young, you know, 16, whatever. Well, no, I mean, I mean, mean, yeah, it would have been pretty quick. It it could work. Yeah, that's that's really again. I'm filling in those blanks because they're presenting me with stuff I'm not interested in. The trauma of that is is smart. What I would have loved is at least one more scene, maybe back home, because they've already dropped the fact that Karen got taken away from Laurie when she was 12. Yes, right. And and she tells the daughter like, you know, I'm I'm sorry you had to see that, but now you know what I grew up with, and you know what it was like. I would have loved that conversation to like have been at home, and they carried out, and we maybe get another flashback or two, and she gets to talk about this is what it's like growing up Sarah Connor's daughter. And the hell that it is. And it was awful for me. And that would have given me more tie into that character and why she's so adamant about, I don't want 
heard a glom that onto your life, Allison. Yeah, and I, and I don't disagree with that. I think that they could have done a little bit better job setting up that whole dynamic between mom and daughter and then granddaughter, right? I think uh, we could have had a little more played on that, um, but you know, the movie is, is what it is, and they may, maybe, I don't know, I haven't watched the deleted scenes yet, maybe there was a little more in there um, that they had to cut out, but... Uh, I thought it was fine and it worked. You know, she came in after witnessing the bus leave the prison. She's a little, you know, uptight, comes in, says hi, starts downing some wine, pisses some people off, and then goes storming off. And I don't know. Do you think she was going to storm off to try and like commit suicide or something? Because it felt like she was going to walk right into traffic if it wasn't for Allison. I, I don't know. I I think she was having a complete like disassociative moment and just sort of freaking out a little bit. And I think she was just o- overstressing at that point. I mean, think about it too. From from the character's motivation, I'm not trying to get into real psychoanalysis here, but I mean, this person is incredibly damaged by all of this. She just had these two British people hand her three grand to bring up the worst memory of her life, and they want her to freaking talk to him yeah right and then she goes and she's trying to deal with all this she watches the prison bus go away she thinks he's coming at her again she realizes she's having a freak out then she goes to the dinner and all she wants to do is just take the edge off and the daughter of course starts laying into her like she's her mother and so that's uh, you know that sets another trigger off for her and she just can't handle it yeah and i think i don't think she was walking into traffic she was more like i'm i'm going back to my hole in the wall and whatever and just getting away from it and there was a good scene though where allison chases her down and they have that big embrace and stuff like that. And I gotta say, like Andy Matichek, like they went with somebody who hadn't been in anything before. Kind of like what they did with Jamie Lee Curtis back in the day, except Andy Matichek's not the daughter of Hollywood royalty. But whatever. I, I actually think she does a pretty good job. Like she's not bad for a no. you know fresh green actress. She's I mean, I think she's like twenty five when she made this movie, but she plays a, a older teenager, a mature teenager. I get it. I I think she has the appropriate emotional response for her character and her generation. She's well written. I mean, I, it's the one thing to say about the script, like the three dudes that wrote it, the, the, you know, stoner Gen Xers did a pretty good job of capturing Gen Y's reaction to stuff. Yeah, I agree. I think that they did a really good job and I, I like the actress's portrayal as well. I think she does a really good job in here on all aspects from her, um, horror scenes to, uh, to every, just everything that they do, the, the kind of high school romance that she has going on with her boyfriend, seeing, uh, what goes on at the party later, all that stuff. I think, I think that she does a really good job. And, and so if this is the first thing that she's been in, um, props to her. That's pretty good. Yeah, now I had nothing for like her high school friends and that whole little subplot. I was like, whatever, I don't care about these people. Like, I honestly thought like all of them were going to get killed. The fact that only the the fat loser friend gets killed, I'm like, well, that's sad. The other guy deserved it more. But anyway, <laughs> um, so we'll we'll get to that when the the kills come around. But I mean, really, I I was like, whatever. But we we cut in between that with the prison bus wreck, and we've seen Sartain get on the bus with Michael, yeah, and give give. I mean, look, this guy looks like a villain on Criminal Minds anyway. So the fact that he has a heel turn later in the movie. I'm like, who didn't see that coming, you know? So we, we roll up on the bus wreck that got spoiled in the trailers, but I like the little setup between the dad and his son that are going like late night hunting or whatever. Right. And the son's like, I'm missing dance recital for this. Like, I like hanging out with you, but I need to be able to do my own thing. Like they're having that whole, again, modern aesthetic conversation there. I, I did like that nice little touch for two people that are just going to get killed in the next scene. Which, yeah, well, thankfully we didn't see the, the, the kid get killed, but yes. Yeah, we did. We said, I mean, he gets his neck snapped by Michael Myers in the back seat. That's pretty hard. 
hardcore. I guess man. I we haven't seen that. him. Holy crap! Oh yeah, no, no, no. That I wrote that down because I mean, when they come up on the wreck, the the dad's running around looking for you know signs of life. There's just all these twisted up bodies and stuff. Dad gets taken out. Yeah. We don't see that. The son goes looking for him on the bus and Sartain jumps out and the kid shoots him. Right. And I'm like, holy cow, that's scary. But then when he gets back in the car and he's trying to drive oh, or whatever, you're right, you're right. Myers pops oh, up from totally the back seat and, you're right. and neck snaps him. And I'm like, now that is carnage. I'm like that. We haven't seen Michael Myers kill a kid. We've seen him kill teenagers. We've never seen him kill a tweener like this kid is maybe 10, 11 years old, mm-hmm. something like that. And I'm like, that is, uh, that is very scary. That put me on edge in the theater, even watching it here at home. I'm like, okay, I had forgotten that that's how he killed that kid. And that is a, that's something that I would put like in the Rob Zombie verse of this, <laughs> no the ultra violence that's coming up. Right. I mean, but it really, that's, I mean, that's what you see is all the carnage everywhere. Yeah. That was pretty, that was pretty nasty. And then of course, um, they get the cops called and and all that stuff. So he he reaches out to the cops somehow, right? The the kid. Yeah, the kid. Yeah, the, kid the kid calls gets, the cops, yeah. and then when he gets killed, that they radio. I love Will Patton, by the way, great character actor, playing pinball at his local gas station because he's <laughs> off duty. Gets the call. And of course, I'm like, yes, this is, he would have been one of the cops on the night of. Yep. And I, I mean, you know, if, if they kept with the original timeline, this is like, you know, Deputy Hunt or whatever from Halloween 2 coming back. And I, I love this. I love this guy anyway. I love him and everything he's in, but I really liked Hawkins, the cop, like is because he's lived with this for 40 years as well and regrets not just shooting him when he had the chance. And, and he didn't, and he just was part of the arrest party. And he's the one that now, you know, tries to convince everybody, like, you realize this guy was on the manifest? That's kind of a problem, Sheriff, with your nice cowboy hat in the Midwest. Right. Um, so the next day, like, he's, he's telling everybody, like, this is really, we need to be serious about this. And nobody, of course, believes him. Of course not. And that's how it always works, right? Because they haven't had to deal with it before, like he did. And so they don't take him seriously because it's just Michael Myers. No big deal. He's just getting transferred to a new prison. No big deal. Just no an old boy. man now, right? right? Like, they just write it off. What, 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 what can you do now? Yeah. And of course, we get these, these two, you know, podcaster journalists the next day at the graveyard embellishing the killing of the sister. You know, we hear every gory detail about the knife hit her spinal cord and all this. I'm like, man, come on. Right. But having listened to a lot of true crime podcasts, that's what they do. That's what they do. (laughs) And I thought like, okay, we're making a statement about the sensational true crime journalism of the day. What is funny is Michael is like watching from the graveyard and the, the caretaker, it doesn't go like, uh, hey, y'all, y'all know that dude? Over there in the prison whites, because I don't, I, I don't know him. So um, this is very, I don't know. That was almost too much for me. I was like, yeah, whatever. But that's because he is following them because he's stolen the he vehicle the that the other people were in. He follows them to the gas station where we get some serious ultraviolet Rob Zombie stuff here. Um, but the, the thing is that we get a mix, though, because I, I don't know if you noticed or not. I thought it was really smart the way that you've got these two people walking around the gas station. And in the background, you see Michael Myers walk by somebody and just start beating the holy hell out of them. <laughs> you know, and, and you realize that's whoever he's stealing the jumpsuit from right. or whatever. And I'm like, OK, I you know, the fact that they're not showing us all of that, that it's just sort of happening around us. That's homage to the past. I, I get 
get that. That's smart. It looks cool. It also sets up that in the 40 years that this dude has been back in prison, he's obviously been working out a little bit because <laughs> he is, he is strong as a bull, man. I mean, he rips people's jaws out and drops their teeth on the floor. He uses somebody's face to open a door <laughs> in the nastiest bathroom of all time. <laughs> I mean, Michael Myers is ultra strong and violent in this. Absolutely. But, uh, that's what you do when you're stuck in a prison for 40 years is you work out. That's what a lot of prison people do. So it makes, it <laughs> the makes ice sense. cube said three hots in a cot, you know, whatever. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I do. I do like the way though, the, the way that he does stalk her into the bathroom. And I mean, it'd be gotten spoiled in the trailers, but he pulls that hand over the top of the thing and just opens it up and all those teeth fall out. Yeah. And I'm like that, that is very different for this one. This movie, I realized is starting to, turn. It's like, okay, we've done all of our 1978 homage stuff. Now we're going to bring it into modern day, yeah. and we're going to have some serious violence here. And the, But the next 10 minutes of this, when we go through the violent attack, that the, the rampage, as I call it, that Myers goes on, you get some serious good Foley work and some good special effects. It's uh, brutal. The, the amount of head smashing that he does in this movie is crazy. Um, right. There's a lot of heads smashing into things until people are dead. And, uh, this is, and just to see the guy watch as he's killing the girl. Wow. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, yeah, he bashes his head in and he's crumpled in the floor going out while he's picked this woman up and he basically just strangles her until her neck snaps. Yeah. Ugh. In front of him. And you know, the thing though that, that I'll give this movie credit for is they wait a little while to put that mask on him. Yes. You know, and so you get some good side views of his, you know, you don't really get everything face stuff, phrase, but the fact, yeah, but the fact that he walks around without all of it for a little while. And even though this whole scene exists just so he can suit back up into his, you know, trope set. Yep. But again, I'm thinking like, that's all this guy knows. That's all he's thought about for all he thought about for 15 years before was getting out and killing everyone again. So all he's thought about for the last 40 years is going back and just killing everybody again. And now he's been given the chance. And so, okay. So he just goes back to what he knows. Mm -hmm. It's sort of like his default mode again, uh, except now he, he's very much into the head trauma. And again, he, he wants that mask, right? That, that mask calls to him. That mask makes him scarier than anything else. And he, I believe he's got a connection with that mask. And now that he has found the two podcasters that mocked him with it at the, at the prison, he is going to kill them, which he does very nicely. And then he's going to get his mask, which he does. Right. I mean, I, the, it's a pretty cool scene when he pulls it out of the trunk and puts it on, even though it looks like it's, you know, from a different movie or something, but it, it, they did a great job with the mask this time. It looks very much like the original in the Halloween two mask. Um, maybe some of the best mask work they've had in a while. That's one of the things that the sequels all suffered from was, you know, varying of the mask, but this one looks pretty good and they did a good job with it. And it's like when he gets that on, it's, you know, that, okay, he's in full on killer mode at this point now. Yeah. Um, and he sees taking out, you know, all these people at this, this place. And, and we even see the cops show up later and they're, you know, Hawkins knows exactly what's going on. You know, he's like, mm, let me guess who's, uh, you know, number that prison issue thing that you just dropped in front of me comes from. Yep. That's, that's from Michael Myers. So like he knows what's up. Oh, absolutely. And, uh, we get this weird scene though, where we flash to Laurie having broken into her daughter's house. So when she comes home, she pulls a gun on her because that's a good way to convince somebody to buy a security system. <laughs> 
And and she's just making sure that daughter has kept up her training, which obviously she has not. Um, True. And but I think the the reason is is because she knows Michael Myers is out. And I think there's a, even a news clip that plays before this scene where she hears the about the prison bus accident. Right. And so right. now yeah, she, she heard about she it. knows she has to make sure that her daughter's going to be okay. And mm, yeah, lo and behold, not ready. No, right. And of course they throw her out of the house because they don't want anything to do with that. And she goes away. And then we, we get to what I think is the best sequence of the film, at least for me, Brian, this trick or treat sequence. You got all these kids mm-hmm. running around. It's Halloween night and you, they bump into Michael Myers, just like they did in, you know, other sequels. And you get, you know, him going on this rampage where he just, we follow him around and he goes and he gets a hammer and then he walks in and he kills the lady cutting the ham, which we see almost off screen. Like we just hear him. That's, you know, mm-hmm. I was talking about Foley work that like you hear him just thwacking it into her, picks up a butcher knife, walks by a crying baby. That's creepy and weird. Right. And then he goes to the next house and, you know, bashes a woman's head in and stabs her through the throat. I mean, he's just going around just slaughtering people place to place. Mm-hmm. And I, the reason I like this is not the gore effect of it because it is really gory. It's that this is exactly what he was basically doing the last time he got out. He just found a street and started working house to house. And the fact that there was nobody home was because they didn't have any budget for people to be in the movie, but he found three people at home and killed them all, you know, and that's what he was setting up again. And he just seems to be doing that again here. And. The fact that he ends up ultimately going up against Laurie again, part of me wonders if you're supposed to read this as he is working his way house to house until he finds her, or is he just doing what unstoppable evil does and just sort of plowing through whatever's in front of him? Well, that's a great question. And I was going to ask you if there were any correlations in the houses at all between the first film and this film. I, 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 Figured you would know if they were. I mean, there's lo- there's lots of drop like Easter eggs with addresses and like kids are in silver shamrock masks, which is kind mm-hmm. of funny. And one kid's holding a boombox, and there's a lot of that kind of homage stuff. And I think like Danny McBride is the one to thank for all of that because he wrote a lot of that. St- he said there is a direct homage to every Halloween movie, all of them, including three in this movie, and but including both Rob Zombie movies, they made sure to put something in from all of them for everybody. But there's really like no rhyme or reason to it. It just happens. Like the killing of the woman in the pink bathrobe and stuff is like the old woman in Halloween too that he steals the knife from. He didn't kill her, but he you know he does steal the knife from her after he gets up from being shot, and that's all played homage to that. And I mean, yeah, I picked up on that as like super Halloween fan, but just watching it this time, just sort of thematically, that's what I was left to wonder. I'm like, is he just sort of working his way? to where he finds her, which I don't believe in. I don't think he has any connection with her. I think he's just killing because that's what he does. And the fact that the plot devices that happen later basically deliver them to him, to, to her, is just happenstance. And it's part of what, you know, I will, when we get to it, I can talk about it. I don't really care for, but at this point, I'm digging this, this whole bit. And this sequence to me again is the highlight of the film. I think it's well done. The music's great in it. And all of the stuff lets you realize that terror has come to that town again. Yeah. I don't know, man. I, I just feel like it's too coincidental that he ends up uh, going after the granddaughter and, um, you know, eventually gets to her house and then decides to go attack that house. I don't know. To me, it's too coincidental. And I think that there is a connection there and he wants to kill Lori. 
but that's just me. Maybe I'm wrong. Um, but I like this whole scene too. I, I love the fact that you have the kids in Halloween masks. So he just blends right in with everything goes, just goes into people's houses and, and, kills them and it's like wow but you're right i mean he's a he's a killer right he's he's a killer that's what he does so he's going to do that and i was just thinking maybe that he's attacking the same houses he did in the in the first one i didn't know if that was true or not that's why i asked i i don't i don't think so i mean i didn't pick up on any of that maybe so um but i i i kind of get the idea though or at least i like the idea of um what you're saying though that it would have been neat if he just went back to the same street that he had been on before. Like that would have been cool if they had gone out of their way to sort of show us that, but I don't, I don't know if they, you know, maybe they did and I missed it. I haven't, the three times I've seen it, I haven't picked up on that, but it's a cool idea. And now, now that I, if I ever watch it again, I'll go, Oh yeah, I like Brian's theory here. Uh, it's very cool that he just went back to where he was last. He just picked up from where he left off 40 years ago. Mm-hmm. Cause again, if we're to believe what, what this movie wants us to believe is that Loomis was right. This is just the embodiment of evil. So when it gets out, it just goes back to doing what it was doing before anyway. Yeah. And especially now that it's really reinvigorated the taste for it. I mean, he, Clearly has done nothing for 40 years, but stand around thinking about all of the different ways he can slaughter people. <laughs> and they're all pretty basic, but yes. Um, I, I don't know. I just thought it was kind of interesting. I love the homage to the babysitter piece, uh, that they did in there, uh, getting the, the babysitter babysitting the kids, having the boyfriend over. And then did, yeah. did you like Vicky and her little back and forth with Julia and the kid? I thought, I thought that was, was kind of funny. Yeah. It was cute. The kid was funny. I mean, they had, I, I, their banter is, it kind of reminds me of the way like my nephews play around and stuff too. Like, you used to be cool, but you're not anymore. You know, all that kind of thing. Like, that was <laughs> funny that they have that little thing going on. I like that she's, she's very much a callback to like Annie and Linda yeah. from the first movie. She's a smart ass. She clearly is much more socially active, shall we say, than maybe like her friend, uh, right. Allison. And, and she's definitely trying to drag Allison along. I mean, Allison's at the dance going like, well, we can't do too much, you know, doobage or whatever. It's a school night. She's like, stop being a little bee and get over here and right. you know, party with me or whatever. And I, I got the humor there. And again, I mean, for three, you know, Gen X stoners, they did a pretty good job writing kid dialogue. And I'm like, okay, you, you guys obviously hung out with a bunch of high school kids for a week or something and, wow, and picked up on what they talk at about. Some point, right? Well, yeah, but they, when they were in high school is when we were in high school, bro. We didn't talk like that. So, <laughs> it's, so it's, that's different. So, but I, we get a lot of, you know, school dance shenanigans. Um, Cameron is like the jerk boyfriend of all time, by the way. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, it throws the phone in the uh, goop or whatever, jello or whatever. And part of me is like, she's got that in a case. iPhones are basically waterproof we, we, up to a point. That's, it's not the point. <laughs> I mean, she, he puts it there for her to come to him to get it so he can oh. wrap his arms around her and she just leaves. Oh, which oh I didn't get that. Becomes okay. a problem because now <laughs> she can't be communicated with. <laughs> right. And th- that's why, cause the phone was left there. Yeah. No, he was trying to make things better. So his attempt was to put the phone in the pudding or whatever that is and make her come to get it, which means he, she would have to come to him. I, I didn't think he was trying to make anything better. I think he was oh, like, no, no. stop trying, stop trying to talk on your damn phone and pay attention to me. And he threw it in the thing and, and he gives her a smart remark after like, well, do you want to get that or should I? And I'm like, moron, what are you? I mean, she's just like, you're a complete idiot. Yeah, no, <laughs> just that, that's, yeah, I think that was his play is to get her to come mm-hmm. to him so he can make it better because he just got caught. Right, he just got to cheat on her. Yeah, we should say he is two time in her. Yeah, so, so um, that's that's a whatever thing I got out of it. Um, and then she left. She she didn't fall for it. 
Yeah, I was not invested in the high school drama. Like, I I know why it was there. The whole point is so we can get her off by herself, basically, which she's not really by herself. But we get her off by herself so that we can get her separated from her communication device. Because that is a problem in modern films, right? You are always attached to your cell phone. Hell, I'm always attached to my cell phone. Mm-hmm. So something goes down, we're dialing 911, right? Like right. That's so we got to get that out of her hand somehow. She could have dropped it on the dance floor. Somebody stepped on it. Whatever. We, this is a better device because it separates her from the Cameron, yep. right? And and she's got her friend Oscar, who's the, the fat hang along friend, who's a, a total geek. Um, and I, as Danny McBride says, it's me, but nowadays. <laughs> and so, which which is kind of funny. And of course, he tries to make a move on her, which she's like, no, that's not going to happen, and you know, blows him off. And he. At least he does That's apologize, like sincere, like he sincerely apologizes. Like, I'm sorry, I was really drunk. There's all these girls grinding up on me and feeding me guacamole. I don't know how to handle this, you know. And, and I, I mean, it's not an excuse, but it is kind of funny. The thing is that they undercut all of that with when you see Myers standing in the background of the, you know, the place wherever he's fallen down yeah, on the ground. And, and I like that know. too, though, because I like the fact that he thinks it's the guy who owns the house and he's apologizing to him for being in his yard and trespassing and he'll leave. Don't worry. And I, I like how they played that off. I thought that was really well done. Like he had no, he had no reason to think it was Michael Myers. Right. So well, he doesn't even know who Halloween, that is. Yeah. And so the neighbor's just dressed up and pissed off that he's in his yard. I want to ask you a question though, because they do that little trick with the security lights where they go dark and then they go light and Michael's standing in a different place, but he's a little bit closer and he's a little bit closer. It's like that lights out, you know, meme that went around for a few years that they actually Made into a movie. Mm-hmm. Um, not a bad one, by the way. Uh, but anyway, I, the fact that he's able to move in between the light sensors and stuff, are we supposed to believe that that's part of his Lure, supernatural yeah. evil part? I'm, I wonder, like, am I supposed to get that out of that? Because all three times watching that, I'm like, I guess that's just him, like, ramping up the evil a little bit so that he can move almost silently in between stuff. Which begs the question, why not do that 40 years before now? But maybe it only works when he has the mask on. I don't know. <laughs> I, yeah. I think it's more of uh, he knows where the sensors can't see him and moves to that area, then triggers him. And then- how, how would he know that having been incarcerated hey, for 40 years? Because that knows? technology got invented after he was out of circulation. I'm uh, just coming up with yeah, out of circulation. Here. I don't know. <laughs> uh, well, see, but see, see what I mean? Look, that is a cool scene. But if I apply any thought to it at all, I'm like, well, how does that work? Exactly. There's your problem. <laughs> You're applying thought. <laughs> well, that, welcome to Filmstrip. Let it go. <laughs> so. get, get into it and just watch. <laughs> I, and I, w- I would. I would <laughs> if I felt like what was happening mattered at all. Because all this is is so we can get a gory kill on the fence. Well, I mean, he does stab the kid. The kid impales his face. Yeah. It's it's so he can reveal himself to exactly. Alice. Exactly. That, that's um, the point is revealing himself right. so that now she understands why Grandma is the way she is. Right, but the thing is, he doesn't know who she is, and she doesn't know who he is. Okay, I'm just looking I at this think- as, again, is that, mm-hmm. I'm looking at this purely as this is just the next thing in line, and the last time he was out, what did he do? He killed a bunch of teenage girls. Mm. Hadn't seen many teenage girls yet. There's one, and that's what he goes to. Mm. I, I still think that there's something that draws him and Lori together, and that would give us the sense that he knows who she is. But, but okay, I'm going to ask you to tell me what that is based on because that is not in the movie. No, like they've in fact they, they've gone out of their way to remove that kind of thing from this movie. Well, okay, how can you remove the fact that you, your victim is still alive and you want to kill them? He doesn't know that at this point. Of course, he like knows he that. No, he doesn't. He there, it's not like he's keeping up with her forty years later. For all he knows, she died in a car wreck or had cancer you, or whatever. It's he, you don't he know doesn't, that he doesn't know doesn't her. Keep up with her. 
how would he, Brian? He doesn't get he, access to the news. Sure <laughs> you ever been in a prison? Moreover, more, yes, time and everything else. Not not in mental facilities when you try to protect damaged people from things that might trigger them. Well, uh, this guy in particular, we, never, we don't know. No way. We don't know. Sartan could have been feeding them information too. And, and you know what? That is a fair reading. Now that I will accept because the way this movie plays out is that's what we are to believe. I'm just saying, like, for me, this is just him going back into default mode. Possibly. Who did I kill last time? A bunch just, of teenagers, especially had... drunk teenagers. There's one, yeah. and there's another one. She and so, drunk, though, but... no, no, but there's there's the drunk one, and there's the pretty one with the drunk one. That's yeah. what I do. I don't know. I, I just think that they have to find a way to tie them together, because otherwise, why would he give a crap about well, Lori? And and what would be the point of Lori? Worrying about him. She obviously well, is worried that he's coming for her, right? That the point of her worrying up. about him is her, is her trauma. Like th- that we can answer. Like that is her trauma. Him to her, again, a lot of things have to happen now to deliver him to her. And, and that, and that's the thing. Like that's the part where this movie starts to fall apart for me is all the stuff that goes through to get him to her is it's a lot of conveniences, and you're right. If I just shut my brain off and kind of go with it, it's no dumber than any other set of conveniences in any movie. But this movie has set itself up to be something very smart and, and it, again, has started. The first half of it is working like that. But then we have to start sort of running through what I consider to be like, I don't know, Danny McBride and them said that like they wrote like 11 drafts of the script, and what got put together was the amalgamation of 11 drafts. And so it feels like it here in the end. Like we have a lot of stuff sort of spinning off into control that works for convenience, you know, maybe, but I mean, again, if, if it were just the fact that he wanted to kill people and he couldn't find anyone in the house after his first attempts, why would he stick around and try to find them and not go somewhere else to kill someone? Well, I mean, I think this is what he's doing. He is just working himself around. Like, we haven't even talked about it. Like, he, you know, Julian's convinced that there's somebody, you know, watching him from the window or whatever. And Vicky, of course, plays it off like a big scare, tucks him back in. And then that's when we get Myers in the closet, which they blew that in the trailer. And I'm like, man, that's another example of the trailers giving away too, too much because yeah. that was a, uh, but I'm going to tell you too, that there was something else though about that that I, I know why it was there because it's a, it was a, it was a laugh in the theater. Both times I saw it in theaters, people laugh. He jumps out, stabs her. You have that big head of the music, and then you have the little kid going, oh, shit, and running out and kind of undercuts it with a laugh. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, ah, I didn't know that that really worked. Like, I I didn't need the laugh there. Like, the kid could have just been like, I'm out, you know, or whatever, and and run Yeah, uh, would have been a better fault. Because at that point, like, I feel like we've, we've kind of gone through our fun part, and now we're really ratcheting up the tension. And to undercut it like that, I was like, yeah, I don't really know that I needed that. Like, it didn't, I don't know, it just sort of messed up. But what's, what's even better is when Hawkins arrives to that house and discovers the carnage yeah. that's left behind. I mean, Dave's pinned on the wall uh, with his Halloween tattoo because he thought he was going to get laid that night, and that's why he had it tattooed on his arm. Mm. And that, that well, well, now you'll remember that. Now it's your death date, and <laughs> you know, and Vicky's upstairs and covered in the in the sheet, and you know, is all cut to hell and stuff. I mean, yeah, it's honestly, I thought like the, they're going to go all the way, Rob Zombie, and we're going to find like the kid and the you know, stapled to the couch or something. But thankfully, it looks like Julian got away. So, yeah, um, yeah, we already killed one kid. I don't think we can do two in the same movie at this point, but especially the cute one. You know, that we've had fun with. I mean, do you agree with me? Like, was that, did that cut the tension for you too much there? Or did you like the joke that they laid on top of that? Uh, you know, I didn't even notice, to, to be honest with you. I thought it was an honest reaction from a kid who obviously is a little, um, 
more vulgar than uh, most kids, just saying what he <laughs> felt when he saw him. Like, oh shit, get out of here, right? Um, oh, I it, it, I just took it as that would probably be my reaction. <laughs> oh, not wrong, definitely. So yeah, I didn't. I'd, I'd I be didn't gone. find it as yeah. humor. I thought it was mm-hmm. an honest reaction from a kid that's getting the hell out of there. Well, and but it leads us to Hawkins is, you know trying to find him now and Laurie shows up with her truck that's got the you know the wheel out of balance and she's chasing him through the streets. Mm-hmm. She gets a shot off and hits him in the shoulder. You know, but well before that, she sees him in the upstairs bedroom right. and what she shoot I mean, by the way, dead eye shot, she shoots the mirror that's him reflecting, but he does give her that look. Mm-hmm. And that's the the time in the movie where I'm like, okay, does he recognize her at that point? Maybe that's when Hell he's yeah. like Oh, so that's what you came back to. So you read it that way. I did. Absolutely. From the get-go, I felt that he had unfinished business with Laurie Strode, and that was his ultimate goal was to get her. And see, I believe this movie's deal is Laurie Strode has unfinished business with him. She does, too. And so, yeah, and she is taking the fight to him. But that look in the window leads me to believe more your theory that, oh, that's when he's like, oh, wait a minute. I remember you. We had that thing. You stabbed me on the couch with the knitting needle. It was fun. We chased each other the stairs. Then the old man (laughs) shot me. But, you know, I mean, really, that's kind of the look he gets from that mask. But I mean, that. but that's the same Michael Myers, the tilt of the head, like, hmm. You know, and I mean, if the embodiment of evil has thoughts in its head other than go and do like a shark or whatever, uh, to use Busta Rhymes line there, um, th- this would be the moment where he's having that. Right. But I mean, I love that she gets a shot off and it, you know, it stops him, but he's like, all right, whatever. And he just keeps going. Yeah. And then that's when he runs into Allison and her friend and all that stuff. So, right. I mean, to me, that was the point where he's like, your nightmare's back, baby. I'm here and I'm coming for you. And here I am. Run. <laughs> well, so. but she does it. Oh, She's no. going she, to him, right? In this to the death. One of them will die. That's how Sartain gets introduced to her. And he, of course, he's like, oh, this is, you know, again, we got to remember he's got an evil plan going here. Uh-huh. And he's like, oh, this is working out better than I thought. There she is. Fine. So uh, somehow she takes off one direction. Him and Hawkins go the other one looking for him. And that's when they, they get called into where Allison has run into the street. And thankfully, unlike in 1978, when Laurie's pounding on the doors, people actually answer the door and like, are you okay? And call the cops for her yeah. and all that stuff. And they, we so, got to also mention that Laurie has gone to get everybody to her house, right? Sartan and, and Hawkins are out looking for Michael Myers trying to catch him. Lori and her daughter and her husband, and they are all heading out to Lori's place because Lori has made basically a compound, a trap, everything. It's all there, right? So they get over there. They're trying to get a hold of Allison, whose phone is in pudding. And so she's not answering, obviously. And they're trying telling the cops. The cops are actually not even looking for Michael Myers. They're looking for Allison to bring her to Lori. So they're getting ready, and we're introduced to what Lori, what we we saw earlier was that you know she was taken away, and we're finding out the reasons for it because now they're getting ready in the compound to take on Michael Myers. And uh, husband's like, "What the." Leap is going on here, right? <laughs> yeah, like talk about the most useless character in this whole thing. Like, I know he's there for comic relief or whatever, but even when he dies later, like mm-hmm. no one even asks, like, "Where's my husband? Where's dad?" They're like, "Oh, whatever." You know, I'm like, good they point. don't even care. Yeah, good point. <laughs> yeah, like, I mean, I think, that, I think which, she which, asks one time, 
And, and that's after Lori already found out he's dead. Anyway, so we got everybody locked. Uh, they're in the basement getting ready to go. She's pulling out all the big firearms. She's got this cool little device that turns an island into a stairway going down, covers it back up. It's kind of a neat little setup that she had going on there. And then, um, we see that, you know, they find Allison, but also Michael Myers and Sartan says, don't hit him. And the, co- uh, Hawkins runs him over, right? Well, yeah. Haw- Hawkins is, is intent on like, I let him go all those years ago. I'm not doing that again. Right. They, they find him, they run him down. But then of course we get Sartan's heel turn yes. where he, he pulls out his magic pin and, you know, flips the blade out of it, which I'm like, man, that's a Spencer's gift waiting to happen. <laughs> and he, he, he stabs poor Hawkins in the throat and then stabs him again. And he's rambling on this whole time about how like, I mean, he's just as obsessed with Michael Myers as Loomis was in all those now forgotten sequels. Right. Right. And he wants to know what makes him tick. Like, I got to see it in well, action he wants now to that know I've how seen it. Feels. Like, he's right. And, sick, and, and he even says that. He's like, so that's how that feels. And up to that point, I'm like, okay, it's kind of dumb, but fine, whatever. We're going to go. I'm going to go with this. Uh, yeah. It's when he, Brian, it's when he puts the mask on and stands up. I'm like, okay, that now damn it. Much, now right? we've, yeah, I was like, no, we don't need to do that. Yeah, like that, that was, that was dumb. That was dumb. That wasn't totally not needed. You know, you get the feeling that Sartan believes that if he kills someone, in this case, Hawken, if he kills him, then Michael will respect him and they'll be peers and they can figure out what's going on together, right? That's you, you want to know you want to know why that's not gonna happen? Because <laughs> obviously Sartan does not have the cult of thorn tattoo, so that's number one. He's not a part of the group, all right? <laughs> and you can't just you can't jump in on that high level. You gotta start lower, okay? <laughs> and secondly, he's this short, pudgy foreign man that cannot move around very fast. He's Dr. Well, Loomis again. And and that's why I want to ask a question. Like, I know they wrote it out because of Donald Pleasant's been dead for decades, and so out of out of respect for that, they wanted that character to have died too. And I mean, granted, he was supposed to be fifty something in the first movie, so he would be very old, old at this point. But even if he had just played a little retcon game and said, No, he was forty in that first movie and he was eighty now. What if this was Dr. Loomis doing this? How would you have reacted to that? I wouldn't have liked it. Uh, personally, because really? no, I just, I don't need the doctor to become evil. I just don't. And Loomis was really a cool character. And I don't think it would have been cool if he became evil. Yeah, Can I tell you, I totally agree with you, but in an early draft of the script, that's what they were going to do. Well, so- and I'm glad that they decided to throw that <laughs> yeah. part out. Thankfully, they decided it was a bad idea. But can I tell you, the whole doctor being evil thing here, too, is is a plot convenience. Because what happens, and we'll walk through it here in a little bit, but he basically gets Michael and this girl closer to Laurie because he's like, I'm going to wherever she is because i got to get these two in front of each other. Because just like the podcasters that are now presumably dead, I want to see what happens when I get these two in the room together, right? Yes. And so he's trying to facilitate that too. So he only exists really to get Myers out of prison and to deliver him to Laurie Stroke. Absolutely. And yeah, and I, I don't know, I just... I, for a movie that had set up so smartly to have just sort of a dumb convenience like that. And- but, but you gotta find a way to get him there, right? What? Yeah. So, and he knows where it's at now because they made a whole plan to bring Allison to Laurie. So he knows right. where to go and, you know, running him down, a great idea. And, but putting him in the back with 
Allison. Yeah, yeah, she's traumatized now. Wow, yeah, forever. What a yeah. dick move. I know, right? Like, what a. I mean, and, could have put her in the granted, front seat at least. Myers is like in recharge battery mode or whatever he does when he's you know hit by cars and things like that. But clearly, he's not totally out. No. And what what I what I will say is Allison is smart because she realizes like I got a guy in this car. I get this guy to stop this car, and he keeps obsessing with like he doesn't ever talk or like, oh he says something to me. Right. I'm like okay, mm-hmm. that's my out. I'm like ooh smart girl, clever. I like it. And what to what gets me and I I only caught it this time oddly enough is when he starts going like what did he say? Did he say the sister's name Judith? You see Michael's hand kind of crumple up like excuse me, yeah. you don't get to say that word. I get to say that word. And he's put the mask back on and that's when he starts dropping kicking Sartain into hell. <laughs> Dude loves to knock people's faces off. Well, and not only does he just bash his head into the car, he pulls him out and then gives him the old curb stomp. He gives him the the Rob Zombie like curb stomp. Like that is again, that was straight out of like a, the second zombie, you know, Halloween where the guy gets curb stomped in the in the stripper parking lot. Yeah. It was it was kind of nasty, but what I didn't like about it is they made it look like his face was smushed completely and splattered all over the place and there's like spaghetti right yeah. and, and, but then when they show him later it's it's just like normal yeah it's like it's almost like it reinflated <laughs> right or whatever. So like, mm. i know I mean, at least allison's smart enough to start ru- start running off through the woods while you know while the the sandwich cops are you know trying to figure out what's going on there because they, they recognize it's hawkins you yeah. know suv right. so they're like come on oh, you old flake you know thing too like <laughs> these cops are dumb as dude hell. no but again, homage to every Halloween was in this, and that was the homage to Halloween Five and the two beat bop cops that are walking around in that movie. So, thank thank you, Danny McBride. We needed that callback. Yeah. So <laughs> they couldn't have just had some girl like Tina like running through the street well, like, and, for a second. Yeah. That would have been okay. And here's the other thing but, too that that kind of bugged me about this whole scene. Now, obviously, Allison gets out. Now they're right. what two hundred feet from Laurie Strode's house. Well, I took it as like they, they were like her compound was several hundred yards off the road and they were just on the main but road. But I thought they were sitting right outside the driveway. No, no, no. Okay. They they were like on the other well, side that makes of more it. Sense like, no, then the, the, that she wouldn't no. just go down the road and get to yeah, the house. The, okay. the two stupid cops were initially where Hawkins' car gets stopped yeah. and stuff is way up the road from that, but within visual distance. Okay. So it's she, I mean, literally, Allison goes through the woods to grandmother's house. Is what happens and, in this. The only thing like she didn't do it was have a red handkerchief. Yeah. Well, she uh, they do like this Texas chainsaw homage or something where she falls into the mannequin pit where all mm-hmm. the mannequins are going and they're like just clothes zooming into her. Right. And I just I I wrote that off as one. I think it's dumb. I we didn't need that scene, but I wrote it off as this girl's traumatized. And if if somebody had been chasing you or you'd I seen suppose, people yeah. you know murdered and you saw figures in front of you in the dark, you'd start freaking out. So yeah, I sure. guess so. Yeah. yeah, but I mean, the whole point is so that we get him to her because the final showdown is going to happen here, and the first thing we got to do is take out dear old dad, mm-hmm. and we we get the two idiot cops that have, you know their car has sort of rolled its way down the the yard there, and I did I, I will say man again for going gruesome and over the top, this is where they kind of hit the 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 high mark for that in my book beyond the sartain headshot you get the one cop who's been stabbed in the head with sartain's pen but his partner's head has been completely hollowed out and his flashlight is stuck into it like a weird jack-o'-lantern like a thing i was like mm-hmm. yes yeah, very 
I don't know. It was it was almost too much. Yeah, and we didn't have enough time for Michael Myers to to hollow out that skull. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This, this all happens like very quickly, and we it should say I'm like that that, that that's why I feel like like this movie starts getting smashed together real fast at the end, and I feel like I'm watching four different like episodes of a TV show at the same time. Yeah. Like there's too much happening here. It's yeah. and I know they're running near the end. They've got to move it, but sheepers like I don't know that we needed that. Like I could just have accepted that when he stepped out from around the corner that those two cops are dead like agree i didn't now. even need to see it right yeah we didn't need to show that agree so mm-hmm. um and we strangled dad uh, but not before he gets a shot off which of course you know alerts everybody in the house and um yeah that's the end of him i'm like i had nothing for that dude anyway right. and i'm like mm-hmm. i don't know why you're here so you could have you could have just been the cop like why did we just do that but whatever so th- that's it but it's all about getting this final showdown going on here and i i gotta say man uh and then they'd showed like part of it in the trailers when his hands come through the door to get her or whatever um it's pretty cool but again he goes for the head trauma and that is one of the worst looking like stuffed mannequins smashing on the door i've ever seen <laughs> like that i'm like you and i could recreate that right now and on your front porch and it would look better than what they did it's really <laughs> it's really bad it is um, and the the, the fact yeah. that she gets that gun around to shoot him off of her yeah that just didn't seem like it would make what work very well, well i mean that that's the thing is like she does a lot of damage to him and like permanent damage. Like she blows two of his fingers right. off, you know, on his, on his hand. And I mean, I'm like, that was, and you get that good, you know, standard Michael Myers grunt, like, ugh. and I'm like, okay, so the embodiment of evil still has nerve endings. Well, apparently, yeah. Cause yeah, that was a problem, but of course he goes right on after it, but it's also a way for them to like find out where he's been. Cause he leaves a little like trail. Well, by yeah, him now, Cause he's, he's bleeding. profusely <laughs> bleeding from his hand. Cause he blew it off. Absolutely. Um, at, at that point. All right. And you know, we got to set up that the, the daughter and, uh, Lori and her daughter are down in the basement getting armed right. and dangerous. Now, what, what kind of blows my mind here is the fact that when Michael is lurking around in the kitchen, she shoots up through the floor. I know. She gives away, away her, her position. position. Yeah. Uh, what the hell? <laughs> that was just well, a move. But then he goes off in another area. And she decides she's going after him. Like, well, so she, he goes off because Allison walks in the door and calls out oh, for them. And right. he's like, yes. and he's like, oh, teenage girl. Okay. I'll come back to you old broads later. And he just goes to them. Yeah. Cause I mean, he clearly knows where they are now. And I, part of me was, was again, I, and I'm, I'm, I can't believe I'm going to defend this because I just, this climax just doesn't work for me. But the fact that. She shoots up at him and gives away her position. I can only write off as her whole point is that's not a safe room. It's a trap for him. Yeah. And she's trying to get is. him down there. Correct. Yeah. So if you read it that way, now knowing the ending, it, it seems less stupid, but also like there's other ways to trap somebody in your, you know, safe room. Like that's yeah. not, well, and, that's and not the best idea. She goes through the whole house that yeah. as she clears a room, she locks it like with, Gates. Yeah, they all they all have like you know pawn shop gates on yep. them and stuff like that. She's built this house to be like the ultimate buried alive mousetrap or something, um, mm-hmm. and it's good. I I do like the showdown in the bedroom, and this is something again I noticed it and I I knew to look for it because it had been put out in stuff beforehand. Like there's a scene in Lori's house where one of the bedrooms is a complete replica of the bedroom she had the showdown with him in in. You know, back in 1978, mm-hmm. like she had recreated that for herself right. in some way. And I'm like, With the doll okay, I, yep. 
Yeah, I'm like, why would you do that unless this is some sort of like gestalt therapy for you to like relive this nightmare over and over? Or if you think you can get him back in there, it'll. I, yeah, and I think it's I don't more know. of uh, something to attract him into that room to trap him. Um, I guess. It doesn't yeah. work, obviously. Uh, no, because because he totally fools her with the he stands behind one of the mannequins. And, right. I mean, he stabs her. She stabs him. I mean, we get we get her going get a good the, fight yeah, there. We get her going out the window, very reminiscent to his fall. And, exactly. Uh, he gets distracted by something and then looks down and she's gone, just like him. So a very yeah. cool little. Well, a- Allison, wherever she was hiding, has made noise, and so he's like, "Oh, let me go look for that." Yep. And then he looks back and she's gone, and I'm like, "Oh, well, that." I mean. Honestly, I like, like I kind of, I chuckled at it, but I liked it because I was like, okay, we're, we're sort of turning the tails on him. I get it. Sure. That, that, that's okay. That's actually worked. Yeah. Um, we, we get back where, of course, from, you know, now he's stalked down and, and mom has come up and grabbed daughter yeah. and they're, they're down in the basement and he knows that the kitchen island is the door. So he rocks it off of its hinges, of course, but he does the Michael Myers thing. He's not just standing there. He's hiding, right? And I gotta say, like, Judy Greer, this is a pretty boss move here to start whimpering and crying. Like, I can't do it. I don't know what I'm doing, you know? And he comes around the corner and then she's like, gotcha. And she just blows him away. She doesn't blow him like, away that- either. It's Laurie that no, blows no, no. him away. I know, but like, she shoots him in the neck and then Laurie comes out of the shadows like, you know, he did in the first movie and stabs him and hits him with the freaking frying pan. And that's when he goes down. Yeah. Um, I liked the Karen part of that. I really did. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I gotta tell you, I did not like Laurie coming out of the shadows. It looks so like, you know, the way that hmm. the reason that first one worked, it was just a light bulb on a dimmer and it was so simple. That looked so like her face was CGI'd into like a fake background. It just looked bad. Okay. It didn't work for me. Yeah. I like her. I mean, it would have been better if she had just come around the corner and hit him with a bat or something. Like I didn't need her to completely recreate that whole moment for me. Okay. Well, I, I didn't mind it. I thought it was a good way to do it. And I didn't think that uh, Karen even shot. I thought it was all Lori. I didn't realize that she No, she no. Ka- Karen, Karen, Karen is doing all that crying, and then when he you know shows himself to her, she straightens up and is like, "Gotcha." So in other no, words, all that, that stuff but she I didn't was think trained she for. Shot. I, yeah, I, she I shot him. Did. Okay, cool. No, she shot him. But that's that's supposed to be the whole bit of right. all that stuff she tried to avoid for twenty something years after her life or whatever. All came back. Snap. All came back to her, and she went right. She did exactly what she was supposed to do, and so she you know she shoots him. They get him in the basement. They, you know, there's a little tugging back and forth, but they finally lock him in there. And then, you know, we turn on the gas. And I, I think Carrie gets the best line, though, too, about like, it's not a safe room. It's a it's trap. trap. Yep. Like she helped build it. Mm-hmm. Like she knows, you know, oh, yeah. and he's trapped there and they light the gas up and they throw the flare in and he just stands there like, okay. And I mean, like, well, what's I don't know. Do? That just. <laughs> I, I don't know. I mean, the guy who's like used people's faces to open doors, he might try to, I don't know, get out. I, I'm just saying, well, like, it just I sort guess, of. But- and, and here's the thing, though. You got to know this ending was totally reshot. Like, they they had another ending where, and it's in one of the early trailers, too, where, like, him and Laurie are having a knife fight on the lawn, right? And, and instead of the whole bedroom where she falls out and stuff, they have that knife fight on the lawn. They stab each other, and then Karen's supposed to shoot him, and he drops, and then they get away. And the very last thing is you see his corpse just sort of sit up the way that it does in the mm. other movie, and then they kick the music, and it goes to black. And they decided to redo it and make it more definitive, yet they cut back to the room, and he's not there. Well, yeah, so, because he doesn't yeah. die. 
Mm-hmm. Is that what we're supposed to get out of, of this? Like, because he okay. they never make sure he's dead. They just watch you just watching the flames go up around him, right? They never show him burning or anything like that. So no. I think he escapes because that's what Michael Myers does, and nobody's made sure that he was dead. They just walk out as the flame the house goes up in flames. And I think the point is we don't know if he's alive or dead, but it, more than likely he's not dead. And can I say though, for somebody who spent forty years waiting for this moment, why would Laurie do anything until she made exactly. sure he was dead? I agree with that. that I agree with that. Like, like I sure. almost, I almost would have liked it if she had made them two leave and she went down in there and like tackled him into the flames or something, and she went down with him, but she was going to make sure he was dead. Yeah, you know, like I, that. W- that would have made sense because where are they going to go? They ride off on a truck and she's bleeding. She may or may not live. I don't know. Like, I it it does. It's, See what I mean? Like it's sort of a half ending. Yeah, and we don't. Like know, I know. Uh, are they going to do any more after this? Ah, we'll talk about that in a minute. Okay. We'll talk about that because in a minute. If yeah, they but are, it, yeah. now we have um, the the granddaughter as kind of the right boy here. But um, yeah, I mean, the, the obvious thing is to make sure he's dead, and nobody does. They just walk away like, "Hey, we did it. We trapped him in here." She's uh, you know convinced that her trap. I mean. What if he finds a nice little spot where he can hide from the flames, everything burns down, and he just walks away? Right, exactly. Or, look, th- there would have had to have been some way for somebody else to get out of that room, and he just, oh, I'll go there now. Yeah. And, I mean, again, this this guy is really good at getting out of things he's not supposed to be, you know, getting out of. And you know he's got to be amped up, and, I mean, obviously his hand hurts a little bit. But other than that, you know, he's good to go you know i mean he's still the same as he was five minutes before that's what i'm saying like that the ending of this man it just it it's it's so false for what we've built up for this Lori character that again this is her ultimate moment and she's gonna walk away without knowing for sure well exactly that but that to me is a halloween ending that that's how it's supposed to end because you're supposed to think it's over but it might not be you know that to me is the is the way Halloween at movies end. You think you've killed him, but then you find out nope, you didn't because you didn't make sure. So it worked for me. We're at the part of the podcast where it's time to get final thoughts, recommendations, and popcorn ratings. So Brian, what are yours for Halloween 2018? I gotta admit, Jay, that I like I didn't go into this watching the first one to get a, a feel for it, and I don't have the emotional connection that you do to this series and franchise. So for me, this really worked. I really enjoyed it. I thought it was actually a pretty well done movie. It could also be kind of a, a I want to say standalone because you kind of need to know the backstory of it to for it to make sense. But it, it, to me, it worked. I can watch this without watching any of the other ones again and not worry about it because I have seen the other ones. And so I'm giving it a medium popcorn. I actually really liked it. You know, Brian, I'll say this. You don't need to do what I did and watch the first one and watch this one right with it. I mean, even though that's kind of what the filmmaker said, I did that because, again, I'm a new Halloween nerd and this is kind of my jam. So I wanted that experience again. And and that's why I did it that way in October 2018. And I did it that way this time because I wanted to recreate that experience for myself. And I made sure like a mental effort to say – I'm not going to expect this film to be that 1978 film. There's no way it could be anyway. It's, it's not, it's built for totally different set of motivations and stuff. So I, I'm not holding it up to that, but what I'm trying to do is to get in the headspace of the Laurie character. Cause that's really the only thing carrying forward. Cause I believe what Loomis said in 1978. And I believe that's what they want us to believe in this movie, that he's just evil. He's just a force. He's the shape. In fact, they credit him as that in the, the credits. So, 
Fine. I'm, I'm good for that. I just wanted to get in her headspace for this. And for the first half of this movie, I'm totally down for it. And I'm at the point where I'm like, as much as I like a lot of those sequels, especially Halloween two in 1981, I'm okay with the fact that like, yeah, you know, I could watch this as the duology and be totally fine with it. It's in the second half of the movie when all that convenient stuff starts happening. And it's just to try to deliver him to her that, it just doesn't work completely for me. And I'm going to give this a medium popcorn too, because it's very well made. It's fun. You can have a good time with it, but I've often used the medium popcorn rating as a bit of damning praise for something with that. I felt like had so much potential to be so much more, but didn't quite get there. And I think they got something cool here. And look, Blumhouse didn't buy the rights to this to make one movie. All right. The plan was to make several of these. If they want to continue the series, which obviously they're, they're going to want to do, I think Annie Matichek is the perfect person to be the new face of the series over Laurie Strode going forward. And yeah. so they have a young actress who could be there for a while to put out movie after movie if they need to. Um, so I think they've, they've set themselves up for something like that if that's how they're going to go. So we'll see. Does Laurie Strode need to be involved anymore? Probably not, but if Jamie Lee Curtis is down, they're going to keep bringing her back because you know, she is Halloween, right? She and Michael Myers are Halloween. So, I mean, obviously they're not going to go away from Michael Myers because they all know the last time they tried that, how that badly that well. went. Mm. <laughs> it did not work for them, even though that film, again, has attained occult status. But Malika God will tell you, he still has production credits and has involvement in these things. He's never going to let them make one without Michael Myers. He knows that's they, the bread and butter for this. Yeah. They can't, and it makes sense. I kind of want him to go completely away from all of these people. I don't need him chasing the Strode women anymore, because now we've just gone right back to where we wanted to get away from anyway. I'd be okay with that, too. I think that would be a, br a better way to go about it, and to maybe even have him show up couple years later in a whole different town completely. Or even if he just showed back up in Haddonfield and they had all gotten on the first train to Clarksville yeah, and were right. not there not anymore. Right. Well, I mean, Lori has burned down her whole life now, like literally in front of us. So there's nowhere to go. But I guess we'll see what they do, Brian, in October of 2020, because they are going to come back with a sequel to this. Jamie Lee Curtis and Jason Blum have come out and announced that they're going to do another movie. David Gordon Green is going to come back as director. Carpenter's even said he He's willing to come back and do more score. So we'll see what they've got for us in October of 2020. Until then, that's the wrap on Halloween, man. And uh, thanks again for, for joining in on this with me, Brian. I mean, folks can go and listen to our archive section of all of our Halloween series. It's one of our bigger horror series that we ever did one year. We, we started it, I think, like late August and ran it all the way through October doing that. Mm -hmm. And so you, you can listen to all the Halloween reviews. A lot of other cool stuff we got coming up here on Filmstrip, though. Do check us out, filmstrippodcast.com. You can download us on your favorite podcatcher app. Please leave us a positive review. You can also find us on Facebook. Just search for Filmstrip Podcast or follow us on Twitter at Filmstrip Pod. Now, Brian, tell folks how they can find uh, your other stuff in the Brian Vinyl Records and the podcast you do. Yeah, so if you're into vinyl collections like I am and collecting music on an old-fashioned big round ball of vinyl plastic then you should join me over at Brian's Vinyl Records. You can search that in any of your podcast apps and you can find that. I do cover a whole bunch of different topics on Vinyl Records. We do a series, Jay and I, called Tracks, where we break down an album track by track and give our thoughts on everything from song writing to production to, um, you know, 
whatever, anything we can think of on Hassan, we'll break it down that way. And it's real fun. Uh, but you can find that Brian's final records, Brian's final records.com or all, I'm all over the place. I got YouTube, everything. So check me out. Yeah, definitely check that out. Brian does a lot of cool vlogs where he shows, you know, different records that he's collecting or even like how to maintain your collection too, which I think is some of the cooler stuff. And then you and I get to talk through some vinyl, uh, of, of before and, and even up until now going through uh, the track stuff. So that's a lot of fun and, uh, uh, people should join in if they are so inclined. Again, folks, we thank you for joining us on this episode of Filmstrip. We'll be back again in a couple weeks with another movie. And until then, thank you for listening to Filmstrip. Thank you for listening to Filmstrip. You can find more episodes on our website, filmstrippodcast.com. The Filmstrip theme music is produced and performed by Frozen Lake 121. All content used or discussed in these podcast episodes is the property of the respective owners and used under the Fair Use Act, Section 504C2, Title 17.